Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, naturopath and technical education manager at Metagenics. On the line today with me is Sharon Whiteman, here to talk about Lyme-like illness in Australia. Sharon is a nurse, a Lyme-like illness sufferer, and the president of the Lyme Disease Association of Australia. The LDAA is a registered charity comprised of a small number of volunteers committed to making change to how Lyme-like illness is viewed and how patients are treated in Australia. The association undertakes activities in four key areas, information, support, education and awareness. The LDAA's mission is to advocate for individuals and families living with Lyme-like illness, educate and seek support for governments, doctors and local communities, act as a conduit between international developments, treatments and other Lyme communities, and fundraise to assist people living with Lyme disease and Lyme-like illness. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate your time. Um, So I I heard you speak on the Senate inquiry that uh, occurred last year, and uh, we'll talk about um, the LDA website later on, but yeah, you've got all the transcripts on there, and it's really, really captivating listening in several hours. Um, I think you went to Brisbane, Canberra, and Perth, and... They had doctors and patients and specialists and um, testing laboratories speak and um, really thrashing out the, the issues of Lyme in Australia. So um, I was very impressed with your um, contribution there and, and the, the work that LDAA are doing. So we'll, we'll touch upon LDAA in a moment, but um, perhaps just if you can share your story and how you got involved, unfortunately, in, in obviously as a, a patient with um, Lyme disease. Yes, yes, it is unfortunate, Nathan. I agree with you. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, um, we're very grateful, to, especially to Senator John Madigan, for initiating the Senate inquiry, and it created quite a lot of movement forward in the in the reality of what's happening in Australia. Uh, I got involved because I was bit by a tick on the Sunshine Coast, out in the hinterland around the Pomona area, um, in 2002. I had a bullseye rash. Um, and I felt really, really sick. Unfortunately, that property we had um, was just tick infested seemingly. And I didn't really know the dangers of ticks except to pets with paralysis. And we used to get up to seven ticks a day off of our dogs. It was like a, checking them every three, four hours or twice a day at minimum. Um, and obviously some would fall off onto humans. And so we were used to getting tick bites, but this particular tick bite I'd never had. I, I remember feeling and telling my partner I've never had one like that. And I felt I had flu like I was aching. I felt really sick. I was awake into the night. Um, and even though I have a Western medicine background, but um, I really jumped ship and started studying natural medicine uh, about a decade before that. So um, I was taking all my natural medicines all night to support my immune system. I got up and looked online and unfortunately only found an entomology site. And they said, oh, this is a bullseye rash. It's fairly fatal. It didn't link to any meaning of disease at all. And so I subsequently didn't link that bite with my decline of wellness over the next three years. Um, by 2005, six and seven, I had seen 17 doctors. I'd been given diagnosis of lupus, uh, sarcoidosis, um, fatty liver, because my first three symptoms were fa- beyond that flu, were fatigue, elevated liver enzymes, and weight gain. I gained um, 20 to 25 kilos in three years. And so it's all pretty nonspecific from a Western medicine perspective. And, you know, I, I had kind doctors and rude doctors and outright negligent doctors in that time. I had given up 
Um, and I had a chance conversation with uh, a U.S. doctor in 2006, and he said, you need to get your blood sent to America for testing. And he was a Florida doctor at that time, and so he knew of the Florida Research Lab. I sent my blood there and my partner's. Um, I, she had a, a rash after a tick bite too, but it wasn't a bullseye. It was sort of a, a different kind of rash, and it was recurring. It recurred about every uh, cycle um, of about four weeks, and she'd get this rash. Uh, both of our blood went overseas and both came back DNA positive for Borrelia burgdorferi sensis strictum. So, um, and that was, you know, a double-edged sword. It was fantastic in a way to have that confirmation, but I still couldn't get any medical help here, and I couldn't get any, you know, it was, uh, it's like a hot potato kind of experience going to doctors. And, um, in 2007, my mother-in-law came to visit, and by that time, I couldn't walk unaided. I no longer – I had a very Alzheimer's presentation. I couldn't remember my family's name. I'd look at them, knew I should know them, still had enough cognitive ability to realize I, how sick I was getting and that this was danger. You know, For me, I'd be very soon completely disabled. <clears throat> couldn't drive any longer. I had a list of 34, 40 symptoms. My pain was extreme. To do anything or go anywhere, I had to take painkillers. Other than that, I was laying on the couch praying to die, and I had a suicide plan. My um, mother-in-law started got scared and started looking online and found uh, the SALT and C protocol, which is a patient-driven protocol in starting out of the U.S., and I read on it, and I thought I had nothing to lose. Over about 18 months of that protocol, um, I regained about 70% of my quality of life. So my, my depression lifted and I started, well, I was still depressed at my disability. <clears throat> I'm happier when I'm contributing. So that's when I put my hand up to increase my volunteer time with the LDAA. That was, um, see, anyway, over the last eight years, I, I started when the LDA started and then increased my hours after our twins were three, because my first year of twins, I didn't know who I was. Um, and, and then um, the then president resigned, and so here we are today. Well, it's an extraordinary journey, and um, unfortunately not uncommon with the patients who um, suffer from Lyme-like illness with the prolonged you know, uh, diagnosis and the you know whole multi-system, multi-symptom um, presentations of fatigue and cognitive decline. So, um, which yeah leads me yeah one of the the really harrowing things of the um, Senate inquiry is hearing some of those um, some of the patient uh, anecdotes and particularly yeah. some children as well. Uh, I naively just sort of assumed it was adults. So I don't know why, but when you heard that the the ch- um, student stories of the children was just really heartbreaking. Um, so, yeah, one of the the things your um, organisation is crying out for is more research, and in lieu of that, you guys have done. Um, some really impressive surveys with um, patients visiting the website and capturing some of this. So first of all, um, tell me about the, the uh, your, your website and what the LDA do for you know inquirers, and then we'll look at the data that you've collected so far. Okay. Yes, um, it is really important to get an epidemiological look at what's happening in Australia. And, you know, obviously our government are the ones that should be doing it, but in the absence of any action there, matter of fact, you know, probably you could say there's prior to the last, the Senate inquiry, there's abject denial of taking action. Um, And our surveys have been really important, but we like to caveat that with the fact that we'd like to do so much more with them but we're very limited on resources and and paying real qualified people to get the results that we get 
we started, um, our organization was started in uh, 2009. Um, there was a group of us that met, including Dr. Marla McManus from the Carl McManus Foundation. We're, it was risen out of a patient grassroots desire to change what was happening in Australia and sort of right the injustice of what's happening. Um, that was when my twins were in utero. And um, so I knew I couldn't continue on because it was about to get very busy in my life. But um, over the 2009 to 2010, uh, Marla McManus went on and uh, decided on a different track and she developed the Carl McManus Foundation and she handed the Lyme Disease Association to our previous president, uh, Nikki Coleman, who did a fantastic job. I worked in the background on the Facebook page and um, Nikki set development of our website and emails and gathering doctors to help patients and just starting on the, the real foundational support to begin in Australia. Um, and as I mentioned early in 2012, I said that I could help more. And by then she you know, had a few years and was really, um, it was a, a big load on her own. And so it was time for her to move on. And so, and then ultimately I just put an ad on the Facebook page. Um, there was myself and uh, two guys, Ross and Brad, uh, as foundational volunteers. And Ross and Brad did the uh, volunteer job of helping with the hygienics kits and getting blood test kits. His, without us receiving bulk loads of them, individual orders from the U.S. were getting lost in customs and, you know, sick patients were having real uh, logistical challenges. So that's where we started. And through the ads on Facebook, we developed um, an executive team and we went on to develop priorities and have gone from there to where we are now. Um, we get about uh, 100 emails a month inquiring for assistance by a doctor. And so we have a, a fairly comprehensive email that we give them that really covers, you know, some basic ideas and a few doctors that, you know, we can't recommend any doctors in particular or the, compare any to any others, but at least hopefully they won't get um, rejected or denied assistance based on the fact that they'd like to be assessed for Lyme disease. Uh, we have 280,000 unique web hits to our website a year. So that, no, that's unique hits from Australians through Australian um, servers. So that's, I don't think server is the right word, but anyway, they're Australian hits and they, you know, that's Australians looking for information on Lyme disease. Um, we have about 14,000 following on our Facebook page and we have an average reach for 27,000 to sometimes 150,000 reach for some of our biggest stories and, and the stuff that really makes patients stand up and want to and their families and stand up and want to take action and have comments so um did, did you ask me anything oh, else that's there? fine that's a good point to um pause and yeah that's probably what really struck me again i was pretty naive to um the lime and i'd heard about it a little bit but what really strikes me is the level of interest and alarmingly the potential prevalence and this is um yeah very preliminary and as you said we still need better data but uh, your team, the LDAA, and I think the um, ACIDS, the Australian Chronic Infection and Inflammatory Disease Society, have also been trying to gather data on the, the estimates of how many people could be suffering from Lyme-like illness. And, and yeah, it was quite startling to, to see in comparison to other sort of more high-profile diseases in Australia where, where Lyme sits. So perhaps if you could um, share some of the sort of preliminary data you've got there from your, your surveys. Sure. Um yeah, that's a really good point. It is, um, you know, our, we estimate that our incidence in Australia uh, will be no different than the U.S. incidence. 
so that first, if from our um, submission to this, especially the supplementary submission, but all our submissions, you know, the analysis of the timeline of Borrelia, you know, was first isolated in fauna in 1959, then Borrelia queenslandica in 1962, then it was 1976 that it was first isolated in the U.S. And then it's gone on from there. You know, there's if you look on that timeline, you can see others. But Michelle Wills, um, who did the survey around the same time as the Russell and Doggett study, they were sharing data. Wills, Michelle actually shared data with them. I don't didn't wasn't reciprocated, but Wills, you know, found 83% of her samples had tested reacted positively to multiple strains and 18% to single genus species. So that was, you know, her pilot epidemiological study. The government should have taken charge then. You know, that was in 1994, late 80s to the early 90s, almost a 30-year delay in doing the right thing by Australians. So many people have been sick and died with this disease. Now it's at epidemic proportions. It's just been hidden by the controversy and the dogma that overruns it. So, you know, it's it really is a place where the Australian government has dropped the ball. I now have three retired health professionals and different uh, you know, a, a bacteriologist, some vets, and, and another uh, specialist who have contacted me who have retired and said that, you know, Australia has failed Australians in this area. There's been a 30-year delay. And at the LDA, we would agree with that. Um, I guess some of our surveys that we've done, patient, our, our 2012 patient survey, uh, we have done one since then. We just haven't had the manpower or the woman power to um, final, finalize the analysis. But, you know, we've seen the statistics you know, we, we did a, a short analysis of the Senate inquiry submissions. So even though they're not standardized in the content they all cover, there's, you know, probably the majority of the 1,200 submissions. So I don't know, we didn't count them, but probably between 900 and 1,000 patient submissions. So that's rich epidemiological data for Australia. The Department of Health should be, you know, analyzing that as a, as a first step, as an urgent first step. Um, and we've asked them to do that. Um, but just on a small subset of 386, um, on 349, Ryan, 75% were female, 13% had never gone overseas, 6% report suicidal thoughts, 28% were had been dismissed by an infectious disease specialist, which is right now the department's health go-to advice for someone who says that they've been feel sick after a tick bite or another bite, um, and 70. 3% of those felt that they were um, infected in Australia, 13 overseas, and 13 unknown. So that's our little mini analysis done by sick patients. We had a small team of about 10 patients that just took a selection of the numbers of submissions with a certain data set that we were looking for, and that's what we pulled from that, which is interestingly pretty close to our 2012 survey. So in that, we had 38% of people who had reported being suicidal, 50% of people reported having to leave work. 30% um, don't remember a bite. Uh, so I think in the surveys that we, we saw similar stats in the Senate inquiry submissions, 50% reported a rash, 25% had never left the country, and 84% in our survey showed uh, flu-like symptoms, which is really the the real target concern after any kind of bite to get systemic flu-like symptoms means there's some kind of pathogen load that their body is trying to fight. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll get on to the um, presentation in a moment. Um, so, yeah, as estimates, I think the acids there um, with their calculations, I think it was about a 
100,000 people may be, you know, suffering from Lyme-like illness. And I think with your calculations in the report, it was saying about 20-odd thousand new cases per year. Is that about right? So I'm just trying to get a sense of, yeah, the magnitude of it. Well, we, you know, based on the reasons I've just said in regards to the emerging evidence in Australia, that was just dismissed instead of further evaluated. You know, we showed evidence here prior to the 1990s. So we... It started, Borrelia was first isolated in 1959, and then again in 1962, whereas in the U.S. it's 1976, correct? So yep. if you look at the, um, our, our potential incidents being the same as North America, which we could have more because maybe it started here. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Like we don't know, do we? That's yeah. the bottom line yeah. is that there's not been enough prioritized research into this. But, you know, just based on the incidents that the U.S. CDC is, um, we – extrapolated for our population that means about 18,000 new cases a year 18. and up to 24,000 in the last 20 to 25 years of you know since the 1994 study but it, you could go back even further so there could be more I know the doctors report you know over 4,000 patients on their books um, and it's really hard to get a real idea because the the absolute, the absolute, absolute majority of Australians who are sick with Lyme disease will be misdiagnosed as something else. Yeah. So they'll be called, labeled Alzheimer's or motor neuron or Lou Gehrig or MS or um, ADD, autism. Chronic fatigue is a major crossover with chronic fatigue. Yeah. You know, there's a chronic fatigue specialist that went to a tick-borne disease conference and learned more about the presentation of tick-borne diseases, went back to his practice. And over time, um, out of 100 patients they determined had a strong crossover of symptomatology to Lyme disease, 99 came back with a positive test from overseas specialist labs. So, you know, that's a, you know, I don't know how, what his total patient group would be. It could be 500, it could be 800, but that's, you know, if you think of those 100 patients, they now have a different hope of recovery if you're targeting the right disease process, exactly. don't you? Yeah. And that's what, um, and I'm sure you're aligned with, is we're trying to um, get people to understand with the fatigue and so forth is that it has, it has to be in your differential diagnosis now. It can't just be dismissed as, um, you know, it's all in the head and made up and so forth. Just like the, um, the discussion over Dr. Shoemaker about, you know, the biotoxins and mold, which there is a, a massive overlap, which we'll get into, but... Um, we need to start considering. It's not. It's probably not going to be every person who's fatigued. It has to be obviously strong fatigue, and we'll talk about the testing and so forth. But I want to put it into um, practitioners' radars and get them somewhat aware of how to start thinking about you know testing and looking for um, Lyme-like illness. So um, some of the other data I'll just sort of uh, go through that I, I found interesting in that report you submitted, um, and it really echoes your case. And certainly um, a lot of those um, anecdotes I heard on the um, uh, Senate inquiry were. The things like the the misdiagnosis, where they've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's in a motor neuron, or um, what you found was a lot of patients here out of 715 you surveyed, almost half of them um, were given some sort of psychological, you know, um, label. A hormone imbalance was a, a, t a typical one. Um, Hashimoto's yeah. thyroid about 10%, um, multiple sclerosis, ADHD, autism, Asperger's. So, um, yeah, these, these labels have been branded, but, um, yeah, perhaps we need to investigate, you know, Lyme-like illness in these patients. Um, similarly, the, another striking thing was the, yeah, you said, what, 17 doctors you went through? And this is, yeah. you know, I'd like to cut that into, you know, to, to less than five. Ultimately, you know, the first doctor you see um, is, should be aware of this. So, um, 
33% of your 900 patient uh, people that you surveyed had seen 10 or more um, specialists or doctors before a diagnosis. Um, and, yeah, alarmingly, about, was it 10.75 years was the average time to actually diagnosis from a bite? Yeah, that's uh, right. Somewhere more than 30 years, which is horrific, isn't it? It's um, incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah we, yeah, we really want to try and cut these numbers down. And, and then... Um, the quality, the burden of illness in these patients, you know, have to um, cease work, they need AIDS, they need to tap into their savings, they need a care and all that sort of stuff. What sort of um, yeah, impact is that having on patients, have you found? Oh, the financial impact is, is devastating. 50% um, leave work and um, many of them not only leave work, then are permanently disabled and they end up being carers of their family. I don't have this exact statistics or anything here of the numbers of that but that's you know it's almost a given when patient gets advanced Lyme unless they're in a financially strong position or have family with finances or family that are strong driver promoters and can fundraise for them um, many people and it's some of the most heartbreaking emails we get are the people that can't afford to see the doctor or can't afford to see get a blood test or you know, it's just awful. Yeah, yeah. I think there was one one gentleman reporting he spent over a million dollars trying to, to find out what's wrong with him on that um, Senate inquiry. So. Well, you know, listen, I, you know, I it's devastated our family's finances. Luckily, I have, you know, a business that um, I can, I've had a foundational income on. But it's still, if I, looking back, I, you know, we had a huge real estate portfolio. Looking back, I wish we'd, you know, when I sold our first house, as we, things started to get tough with me not being able to do what I used to do, um, you know, I should have just sold it and gone overseas, but I didn't, that was 2006, seven, eight. I didn't know any, anything yeah. about my disease and I didn't know that you might never get better. And I didn't know that, you know, doctors don't know what they're doing here in Australia unless you find the needle in the haystack. And so, you know, luckily the awareness is significantly better. You know, that's one thing that us in combination with the, um, various Lyme communities around Australia and families and everybody's taken part as you know Lyme is a well I would never hardly ever run into anybody that doesn't know what it is now which is that's you know it's, it's not hope for people suffering patient suffering but it's hope for prevention for many people they think of it quicker yeah thank you so I want to um, step into three controversial areas there's probably many more than Lyme but um, you know uh, I'm certainly not an, an expert on this, and I've, I've been looking at it for a long time. And um, you know, you're coming from more of a patient perspective. But I think between us, we can start at least um, uh, illustrate some of the issues going on. So first, the, the three ones that I, I see mostly, and you've, we've covered the first one a little bit, is that you know, Borrelia doesn't exist in Australia is the sort of conventional view. Yet, um, what really strikes me is that many, many patients, once they've had their blood test um, sent overseas and so forth, is coming back positive. So that discordance there. Secondly, so once um, it's sort of recognised, then uh, the test, which leads on to the testing, there's a lot of controversy, not only in Australia, but overseas about how we test for Borrelia. And then there's also the other consideration that it's not just Borrelia it, um, from these tick bites. You know, the, the colloquial um, phrase is it's, uh, the, the ticks are nature's dirty needle. They contain numerous organisms which all can contribute. So there's also testing for those ones. And then finally, if it is sort of acknowledged and recognised, there's um, controversies in treatment. Um, do we do just the sort of standard couple of weeks of antibiotics? So we'd go for the long-term antibiotic therapy. So as a bit of a frame-up, I want to 
step through those and just sort of lay out the evidence. And um, for these people, practitioners are just sort of getting, you know, intrigued by it and wanting to know more. Hopefully we can whet their appetite and we'll provide a few links and so forth to, um, you know, dive deeper into it. So, yeah, first of all was the, yeah, I think it really stems from that one study you said in 1994 that... claims there was no Borrelia in the, the samples taken, but there was, there's was, there been um, evidence um, prior to that and, and more recently that um, refutes that. And I think there was one interesting one about the testing a patient's, um, the, the bullseye rash and detecting the, the Borrelia there. Is that correct? Yes, and, and there's another project going into that. But the bottom line is world's best practice for Lyme disease diagnosis does not require a positive blood test in order to diagnose a patient. It is patient history and clinical examination. So no matter, even if you have the absolute best testing, the most prestige lab, you're still going to get false negatives Um, because just by the very nature of the pathogens that they hide very quickly, they, they disable the immune system very quickly and they're out of the serum or out of the blood into tissues and bone, you know, they say, some people say within hours. Yeah. So it's going to depend on the, the overall health and genetics of the patient. So this is, there's no more important place for individualized medicine than with, you know, you could argue for everything, but with Lyme disease, it has to be looked at that way. You know, yes, it's fantastic to have a positive blood test because, you know, it's sort of, you know, it gives everybody sort of a peace of mind on one level. Um, but Definitely the blood testing in Australia is discordant and that was declared uh, in writing by the Department of Health, the chief medical officer in July 2014 and they committed at that time to fixing Australian blood tests. So as part of our uh, Lyme patient group, there was I think 250 patients in a group that banded together in December 2012 to 13 around the clinical advisory committee and we submitted to that their scoping study and what out of our research through you know this through this patient group of which um we were part of the leaders for that we discovered that you know the two labs in australia which is westmead and palms at north shore in sydney were using different test kits they had different criteria for a positive one would give a positive on three bands and one on or something like that. I can't exactly remember. It's in our scoping study. So, but the bottom line is that's really substandard medicine for Australians. You know, Australians deserve better. So that was highlighted. It was exposed to the Department of Health and they confirmed it. Um, and they have, um, um, I don't, can't, the word's not coming to me. So I'm still Alzheimer's sometimes with my vocabulary and my word recall, but they've created or started a study to analyze that. And um, that's yet to be reported. They, we were told that it would be January, February, so um, we're hoping to hear the results of that soon and what the result is and how to fix Australian testing. But having said that, there's, you know, Australia is not, we don't even have a blip on the radar compared to international markets. So, you know, in the internationally, they're finding a new tick-borne or vector-borne disease almost every quarter. You know, like there's been May and I and um, uh, another one, and there's been um, vector-borne disease found in mosquitoes. There's been um, something like almost 50% of ticks off migrating birds in California have Borrelia in them. There's all kinds of research progressing. Mm. Australia is not looking at our, our migrating birds. Uh, 50% China reports almost 50% of the population will have a vector-borne disease. Wow. No, not 50%, 10%. Well, it's still a lot. No, yep. Yeah, yeah, it's a massive, massive number. Um, so, 
Uh, I guess in regards to testing, I think, you know, the, yes, we need to urgently fix it. But number one, doctors need to realize it's a clinical exam. You need exactly. to hear the clinical, you need to get the history and the clinical exam. The other thing that I hope that was brought um, to some highlight out of the Sydney uh, Senate hearing um, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm still having something in my head so one of the things I have difficulty with is number recall I've got a feeling that China stat I just quoted you was wrong so <laughs> okay. with your permission I'm gonna get back to you on that. Oh, no, we can five. update that yeah yeah please update that but anyway um, Dr. Horowitz in the Sydney yep. Senate hearing one of the things that I think was it was sort of you know when you ha hear something and you just time stand stills and his perspective on just looking at in North America at disability and the rising amount of disability and that they, he talked about his analysis of that and he has a plan to walk for doctors and practitioners, health practitioners in their analysis and diagnosis to walk them through this criteria so that they would have almost like a branching. So you say yes to this and no to that, then you're going down this next path and this one needs to be looked for all disability because I believe that stealth pathogens are going to be underpinning so many of the modern day diseases mm. and we just western medicine has lots of strengths in emergency medicine but in chronic medicine we're really falling down and we tend to not know what we don't know and we tend to if we don't know something like you've already highlighted we give it a, a psychiatric label as opposed to we don't know yet and to be creative. And for the instance, I know when we were having a brief chat before that some of the challenges that doctors are having um, with APRA in Australia in regards to treating tick-borne diseases, you know, they're being challenged and charged with treating outside the treatment guidelines. Well, how can you treat within treatment guidelines of a disease that's not recognized? So these doctors are doing the right thing by their code of conduct as a doctor, what they've committed to, and they're being vilified by their peers. So and regulatory bodies and nobody supporting them, not even the government. So, you know, you would have heard my stinging um, report to Dr. Gary Lum from the Department of Health, co-authored a paper of no Lyme disease in Australia the day before the Senate hearing. He co-authored it and that timing of that publication was beautifully timed to try and discredit. Um. Now, I'd like to say that how could you co-author, you know, and really the no Lyme in Australia is all about a single strain, Borrelia burgdorferi sense restrictive. Okay, so it's just a single strain. So what he keeps, what he's saying instead, if you want to analyze it and get the truth of it, he's saying that this North American strain is not here. So therefore, there's no Lyme disease, whereas internationally, they're now expanding the definition of Lyme disease, you know, forward thinking and innovative thinking doctors are going, well, gee, now we know that there's these other two Borrelias that are causing very similar symptoms to Lyme disease. There are subtle differences, some more neurological in some and more arthritic in others, but ultimately it's a total system deregula deregulation based on stealth infections, pathogens of all kinds. And it's Dr. Horowitz, world leading expert, says that he's never seen a single pathogen Lyme disease patient. It's not just Borrelia yeah. anyway. So they're using a, a loophole to deny a disease and to unjustly neglect care for Australians and that's what we're about it it's um it's a human right issue really I completely agree um yeah thanks for sharing that and um I'd love to revisit that at some stage so uh, moving on in a perfect world I just want to sort of lay out some of the, the tests um 
as I said, that could be done, um, ignoring, you know, regulations and so forth, and maybe, you know, that hopefully that day will come soon. Um, but, you know, there's tireless work from you guys that will help us get there. But um, assuming we could do things, let's just go uh, step through some of the tests. Um, so first of all, there is the CDC sort of, that is the, the standard protocol, which does receive a fair bit of criticism, which is a two-tiered test. As I understand, you do the ELISA test first, um, and if you test positive to that, then you go on to do the Western blot, and that is the sort of the the accepted sort of quote unquote gold standard for um, testing for Borrelia. But that has received a lot of criticism that it was only ever developed for surveillance in the US, never for sort of diagnosis. Um, and numerous studies have shown that the first you know step to the ELISA test about it's only got about a fifty percent um, you know accuracy and sensitivity. So. It sounds like a lot of patients are falling through the cracks and that's sort of the, the test currently used in Australia, only sort of seemingly reserved for people who have been overseas and, you know, been bitten in endemic areas. That's sort of the, the stereotypical sort of um, line presentation. So even that seems to be failing. So outside of that, that's where we have to get, you know, creative um, in a sense. So um, you recommend there's a couple of labs overseas. I think it's Infecto Lab and there's another one in Germany or the States. And also locally we've got the, the DNA type PCR testing, looking for the you know Borrelia and other species, um, you know the genetic uh, material there. So what about what are the patients currently doing from your surveys in these sort of you know this sort of space? Uh, we haven't surveyed it of late, but we know just from knowing the Lyme community, uh, you're correct. The two tier, looking for an immune response, um, patients infected very quickly don't have an immune response, so that's faulty from the beginning. Uh, PCR can be very sensitive, but still missed because you need to, you really need to, the only way is an autopsy to really find in all the tissue, uh, very quickly goes to the brain and to bone and um, in some patients. So it's just not, it's not in the blood and blood is the primary first test. Um, there are uh, emerging tests um, in urine that are, you know, as, thank goodness science is being prioritized in some places in the world. Um, those labs, yeah, Infectolab, Armin Lab, um, and Igenics, they all have the ISO 10589 uh, correlation with Australian testing. So they should be, as international harmonization, they should be equally recognized. Uh, and that may be true at a legislation level or at a policy level, but it's definitely not what patients experience in the doctor's office. We even um, recently, uh, Murdoch University has progressed a pilot study in patients. So they've got a medical partner because none of their previous research where they found five novel pathogens in, in Australian ticks. It's not Borrelia burgdorferi sense restrictor yet. Um, but may, who knows? You know, they could be needing to fine-tune their processes, and that's what they say. We don't, we don't know what we'll find yet, but they're now looking in patients. They've just this week launched a pilot study. Already we have patients reporting to us that their GPs refused to sign the blood test response. So they've gone to their GP. They, they need to get a doctor to sign it in order to get their blood tested to go off to research on Lyme disease in Australia, and their doctors are saying no for that. Right. Like, it's just, in, it's absolutely insane. Anyway, I digress. Um, and uh, the other one I'd like to mention is Australian Biologics. She is very, she's got world-class, you know, Burke, she's, yeah. yeah, Jenny Burke, she's an amazing lab. And as, you know, I don't know how much fortitude any single person can have <laughs> with the, the blocks that she's come up against, but her um, lab testing is is equal or better to any lab in the world. And she's, um I don't understand all the details of it, but I know she's correlated with some of the world class and she's 
correlating globally with world-class labs yes. and they're using her as part of the standardization process but she's still denied in australia it's like a she's just such an unsung hero and yes. um what's happening there is really wrong so you know she's an excellent lab and you know interestingly they're reporting of her being too sensitive well <laughs> how can that be a crime you know if you too sensitively find borrelia isn't it still borrelia um anyway there, there's just so many there's so much dogmas and stigma and and I will go as far to say um, outright corruption. And, you know, part of the stuff that you need to know about a very small research pool in Australia is that it's an inner circle club. You know, you could call it an old boys circle. No, yeah. That's the majority. But yeah. It's definitely an inner circle club, and you just don't rock the boat. Or it, and hopefully, you know, people like Dr. Charlie Teo will keep pushing to expose some of the corruption that's happening in medicine and research in Australia. Yes, um, listening to Jenny on the um, Senate inquiry is yeah, fascinating and it's seemingly almost impossible for her to get um, registered. So that means, I presume, um, that the patient obviously has to pay for these tests and um, does Correct. Australian Biologics also, they cover other, the co-infections, um, the Bartonella, Babesia and so forth? Uh, I can't remember which ones they test, sorry, Nathan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you probably won't I be don't think those so. as well. Um, one interesting yeah, one. Those are very, very difficult as well. They're mostly clinical diagnosis. It's yeah. really difficult to um, test for some of those. Yeah. Um, one I just heard about recently was from Dr. Andrew Heyman, who um, was talking about the nanotrap test in the urine for um, the Borrelia. So the Borrelia has a atosurface protein, which can be shared, and it's unique to Borrelia. And um, there's technology now to capture that in the urine, which is highly um, sensitive and specific for. Um, but really, and I don't think just um, Bergdorferi because the, the outer surface protein is probably similar and many other um, species, I, had, I need to check that out. But that seems to be an emerging one. So hopefully that'll be another tool in the kit in time. And um, you can check that out at series, C-E-R-E-S, uh, nano.com. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I think you're completely correct that all the experts like um, Horowitz, who's um, been doing it for 30 odd years, all agree that it's uh, based on a, on a clinical diagnosis. So we need to use testing as part of it but yeah um it's not always i, I led to believe only about maybe less than 50 percent actually develop a rash um after a, a tick bite it may not be a tick at all um but you need, need to build that sort of clinical um library of information one of the areas where i thought and um we covered this with dr shoemaker that may be helpful is some sort of surrogate uh, markers that can be done um which First one might be the um, where the, the sort of the ELISA immune tests are failing. As you said, um, the the Borrelia is one um, curious um, organism. It's got some incredible machinery to to avoid um, detection. It goes into stealth mode into biofilms and changes its um, antigens and it changes its form and it can hide. Um, so part of it is the immune system doesn't detect it and um i think maybe one one little tool you can use is the the hla test um to see if you're potentially genetically not able to handle the um borrelia to pass it on from the innate immune system to the adaptive to create these sort of um, b-cell responses so i spoke about that with dr shoemaker in his podcast um and as you said another thing i think there could be a potential sort of additive piece of data um is doing like imaging the um the spec scan pardon me i think you've had and um you've looked at in your surveys that can be somewhat indicative of lyme with um poor blood flow to certain regions 
And the other one that's becoming popular is the the NeuroQuant the MRI, specialized MRI imaging, where um, they measure volume of brain. Again, I spoke to this um, with Dr. Shoemaker, and basically a, a mold brain, for want of a better term, looks different to a Lyme brain, which looks different to an Alzheimer's brain. So obviously these are further testing and further expense, but um, are beginning to be sort of quantified and uh, the um, Borrelia or Lyme brain shows distinct atrophy of the forebrain, um, the putamen, because of the um, all the damage there, but also inf- inflammation is going rampant in the thalamus and cerebellum. So um, I can put some links there on um, some of the data there, but we are building a bit of a profile. Probably the other one I wanted to mention was the um, C4A test, which is also from the, the Shoemaker camp about looking at the complement. Um, so this is a part of their immune system which gets increased and what the, um, I suppose empirically the clinicians are finding is if the, the C4A is elevated um, between say 6,000 and 8,000, that's indicative of Lyme. When it gets over 10,000, it's mold. Um, so as I said, I'm not an expert on this, but this is, I think, yeah, we need to try and gather, you know, further lines of evidence, just like with any case and, you know, trying to, um, I suppose, build a, a story and then need to collect multiple points of data. So there's some of the things and I hope to follow this up with a, another GP to um, really dive into that. But um, what's your experience with your patients? They often, it is a clinical diagnosis that they um, receive? Well, you know, we've only have, we have a shrinking number of Lyme specialist doctors because yeah. of APRA and just because of the stress of always already standing up to all that scrutiny constantly and you know and then you know your listeners would probably know more better than anyone else is this sort of witch hunt on natural medicine in australia at the moment um and to me that's at alarming levels i think you know this is you know we're really going back to the dark ages here natural medicine you know the, the and you know i've been studying for the last 15 years that you know integrative medicine the best of modern medicine yeah. and natural medicine is is the medicine of the future and that those areas of medical and mer- medical colleges are the most rapidly growing but the, it's like the old guard is just in dying stranglehold on, on status quo so um i think that um all these di- specialist diagnostic um tests that you're talking about it they need to find it again our most qualified or most experienced, I guess, is a better way to put it, uh, doctors in Australia, there's either have closed books or have, you know, up to 18 months, two year waiting list. And that's not dissimilar, like Horowitz books are pretty well closed unless, you know, you break his heart on some level, I think, and find a canceled appointment or something, find your way in. Um, And, but, you know, patients, the, the bottom news line is most patients can improve. ACIDS report 70% recovery rates. And that's with, in such an, it is, needs to be called emerging, even though it's been here for probably 30, 40, 50 <laughs> years. But emerging in recognition, um, that's, that's pretty good when they're trying to work out what's really going on. And that science needs to change and how we used to evaluate health needs to change. And these new testing and evaluations need to be accepted by mainstream. So I don't know, innovation, I think, is always um, challenged. Um, and medicine needs to evolve to the place where they embrace innovation and need to look at things in, through new eyes. Well put. Um, we're probably not going to solve everything here, but um, I did want to move on to the, the third controversy, um, just to sort of, you know, air it in a sense, is moving on to the treatment. Um, so, yeah, 
assuming a, a patient gets to that point where they uh, do suspect a, a Borrelia and a, a co-infection, um, again, this is where controversy lies, and this is where I suppose mainstream level of more criticism. That the fact that the, I think there's a currently I think four clinical trials showing prolonged antibiotic therapy. If you look at the sort of gross gross data, um, doesn't seem to help patients with um, Borrelia. But um, you know the counter argument is that when they've done further analysis, it does it does seem to provide some benefit in terms of um, energy and, and cognition and so forth. It's not wholesale you know curative and. That is probably the story with um, functional medicine that, yes, you, you may want to do some antimicrobials, but um, as shown by Professor uh, Garth Nicholson, simply supporting energy production like mitochondrial function with um, CoQ10 and B vitamins and so forth, that's provided a 30% improvement in patients with Borrelia. I think it's certainly a, an integrative and holistic approach, but, um, yeah, that's often one of the criticisms of, is the probably... The, there's two schools of thought that you treat them for a couple of weeks with antibiotics and um, that's all you do, or more from the International Lyme Associates, the um, International Lyme Association. I sorry, I don't know the, the full acronym, but they're the, the more the Horowitz camp where they're doing the prolonged therapy and, and claiming um, good results. So, um, well, well, <laughs> what's your any comments there? If you want to add to that, <laughs> that depends. Um, <laughs> Listen, the two weeks, that's fantastic for someone who's just had a tick bite, maybe a rash exactly. and flu-like symptoms, and in two weeks, all of their symptoms go away. So they're completely symptom-free and normal, yep. um, their previous normal. And having said that, if you know, if I met someone in my community or wherever who had that experience, I would still say get on to go to a naturopath, get on to some, whatever your favorite is for immune support yep. because you just don't know. You can't take this for granted. And, you know, I, I wish that I knew at the very beginning I would have done a very different path. You know, I, would, yeah. I, I thought, you know, I'll get on top of this. I had no, no idea. You really need to take this life-threateningly serious and be aggressive from the beginning. Luckily, I had a friend who um, traveled uh, – She's a, a corporate trainer. She traveled. She travels globally all the time, and she had um, been in Japan. I think Japan and three countries anyway, and one of them being the U.S. <clears throat> in the mountains. And but she was only in corporate rooms. Only didn't do any bushwalking. She yeah, just right. went from corporate room to corporate room, corporate room. Came back. She had itch on her back. Went to the doctor and thought that she saw something, and then they thought it was a, a mole. It was a tick. And she went into full-blown flu symptoms and aching and wasn't feeling well. And she had no idea where she got it from. Uh, long story short, she had, you know, knew that I had been sick and sees me on Facebook. And she called me, and I was able to, real, I was able to say that to her: take this seriously, as if this is going to not get better. You know, take, you know, and you know, she got naturopathic and medical support and antibiotics. And you know, luckily she had a, she just her regular doctor wasn't there, and there was a a locum that was an internationally trained doctor and immediately said, you need to take this seriously as well. So she was well taken for, but it's the exception rather than the rule, unfortunately. In regards to, other than that, that's the only time two weeks is any good. The yeah. rest of the time, it has to be individualized medicine. It's ridiculous to put a statement like that because these are all human beings. <laughs> and um, long-term antibiotics, well, yeah, exactly what you said, yes and no. Like some of these other things that are emerging like mold issues and the the um neuroquant stuff that's all really specialized and emerging and innovative techniques right so maybe treatment failures might be that mm. i recently had the gift of being able to have um very intensive ozone treatment in cyprus 
And um, one of and the doctor there, um, you know, his theory is that he's he's a Russian doctor, and it's it's the viruses that are cause people treatment failure in Lyme disease. That there's always viral loads that aren't addressed by the antibiotics, yep. and that ozone therapy handles the virus as well. So. I mean, I don't know what happened in Cyprus. I had a lot of ozone and a lot of rehab, and I'm significantly better, including my POTS is almost completely gone. That was always had maintained. Yep. Um, I would even want to say it's gone because I can walk. You know, I need to build stamina, but I think my POTS is gone. You know, it's been two months back, and it's still gone. I still don't get tired when I'm standing up. And, um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe I've had a. I know I've had a pathogen load decrease, and it's probably the viruses because I've been tracking the bacteria for you know years now. So, how do we know? But we need these master therapists and practitioners in their own special areas, and they need to be integrative and inclusive and innovative and work with each patient with individualized medicine. Um, and there is, um, there's doctor, who is it? Um, there is a list. The immediate past president of ELADS, Dr. Daniel Cameron. See, there's a name recall mm-hmm. working. Um, he he um, has a list, and I don't know. I thought it, yeah, well, this number recall is not going to work. I think it's like 700 um, different papers on um, persistence of bacteria. So um, yep. I could be able to get that to you if um, yeah, that'd I be find good. It. Yeah, the persistent cells is a really fascinating thing. Those sort of sleeper cells that just hide and wait for a better day to um, reemerge and cause grief on the host. Um, and so how can they ignore that much evidence and then just go, oh, two weeks is enough? Yeah. That's not science. That's not medicine. That's not ethics. It's not integrity, is it? It's wrong. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, perhaps tell me uh, of the audience about the more the findings of the Senate hearing. As I said, um, really encourage anybody to go onto your um, your website and listen to the SoundCloud um uh, recordings of the the Senate inquiry, but tell me, uh, I think it was in November um, there was a, a parliamentary hearing, and what what was that? What was the sort of um, conclusion there, and, and what sort of action did they suggest to take, and what has been taken so far? Well, the, the Senate inquiry itself uh, started in November of two thousand and fifteen. Um, it was. Uh, a motion put forward by Senator John Madigan, and it was um, co-sponsored by the full crossbench, which is unusual. There's, all, there's not that many that get the support of every single crossbench senator. Um, unfortunately, there was a double dissolution, which seized everything. And then in the new government, the 45th Parliament, uh, the Standing Committee on Community Affairs uh, reinstated all um, seized inquiries, which was great for us. Um, and they had one further public hearing in Sydney, of which I was at. And then they reported that was I think that was November third, and they reported on November thirtieth. Um, the this summary of the um, what they've recommended was obviously affixed to the blood testing, a, a lot of research. Um, I guess from our perspective, nothing is good enough if they don't number one recognize there's something in Australians that's making something in Australian ticks or bugs that there's Australians are getting sick after tick bites at minimum and that should be then immediately followed up by that doctors should be empowered to do the best they can with the knowledge of the day while research is prioritized no other single Australian should have to wait for research in order to prove that they're sick they're sick you look at the patient they're sick you don't need well we don't know yet what exactly what pathogen is you do the best you can and you liaise and consult with 
local and international experts. They also indicate, you know, that to embrace a summit. So a summit's great. We have yet to see evidence. But matter of fact, we have no confirmation of progress as of yet. We've been asking since January what's started from that list. They're not obliged to do anything from a, a, a Senate inquiry. It's not the same as a Royal Commission, but um, obviously we can't lay down and let them wait for their right timing because there's, you know, we had a young Lyme patient commit suicide last week because she was, you know, not connected to her family, was had lost her finances, her employment, and therefore was out of money, uh, had no resources to get treatment, and had given up hope. Um, you know, and the psychiatric impact on patients, psychiatric and psychological impact on patients is just astronomical. You know, massive, 50% of people consider or contemplate, have suicide thoughts mm. or contemplated. And you don't understand, I, you know, in a way I wish every single denier had, you wouldn't survive five minutes in a Lyme patient's body. If they had that one lived experience, even for an hour or five minutes, they wouldn't cope, you know? And so that's when things would change. I tell you, the balls would start rolling. So yes, and the other thing that's just as important is that recognition empowerment of doctors to treat now with the best of the knowledge of the day while prioritizing everything else like treatment centers and testing and research to find out exactly which pathogens and get some more knowledge on that. They also need to have tick bite and insect bite awareness campaign. So we shouldn't say stuck in the dark ages. Everywhere else they're finding it in bed bugs and and March flies and um, mosquitoes. So why do we stay stuck in the 1970s with same as the diagnosis? We're still looking for the 1970s first pathogen here in Australia, waiting to find Borrelia burgdorferi sensu stricto. Otherwise, we don't have any problems in Australia. They're just a bunch of psych- psychiatric patients. Um, we also should be looking at different vectors. So it really is a vector-borne disease, um, my personal opinion, and it's a moving target because it's such a uh, charged situation in Australia and it's a moving it's sort of very volatile as you can imagine but I think we should you know we have an Australian Lyme disease here we don't know what it is Burdoffrey is going to be part of it I tested DNA positive for that I am Canadian by birth but I had a bullseye rash from a tick bite in Australia yeah now there isn't evidence yet to know if other types of Borrelia give a bullseye rash as well um so that's another possibility but no not one further Australian should get sick and be denied immediate treatment after a bite with a rash and symptom, flu-like symptoms. Sure. Sad, you know, it's, it's sad for the ones that don't get those immediate symptoms or don't recognize the bite with this, which is don't remember a bite, which is a significant percentage. Um, but yeah, that's the other most important immediate in a, um, implementation of the Senate recommendations that we think is really important. Great. So for, you know, um, patients or family members or practitioners, um, how can they help the LDAA and, you know, what sort of things can we aim to do in the future? Um, I think the best way to help the LDAA is to stay connected with our content, to refer uh, people who may liaise with us to progress the situation forward. We always need volunteers and or um, expert support to... um, Keep an open mind, you know, that to really look at the, the, understand that the patient is sick and that the information is decades old, the regulatory information, the government information, the medical colleges, they're, they're focusing on 30 year old data and, um, 
or a 30 year old perspective on the disease. You know, everywhere else we're progressing and Australia is lagging behind. Well, Australia does have the opportunity to have world-class approach here. You know, they could use this exposure of so much evidence to draw a line in the sand and say, we've got an emerging, they can throw 1.4 Zika with, Zika with no cases in Australia. Mm and nothing to Lyme disease. So they, but they could change that. They, they could have a real brave, honest, authentic health minister or chief medical officer just to draw a line in the sand and go, right, there's something, something's making Australians sick. Doctors, you need to take tick bites or any kind of bite seriously that has symptoms. Doctors, you need to, if you don't feel comfortable in treating, find a list of doctors that you can refer to or liaise with doctors and they need to train doctors. They need to include international expertise and the local expert doctors to help doctors feel more confident. It is overwhelming for any, and the same thing should happen in natural medicine. You know, they need to connect with those that are brave and have sort of been on that front for a while and, and uptake that expertise and, um, yeah, really help Australians that are sick. Right. Well, Sharon, you're doing an incredible job and you're, you're fighting a really important battle and um, you know, I wish you all the best and I hope we can catch up in the future and um, maybe have some more positive updates, but I really um, thank you for your time and um, look forward to speaking to you in the future. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. We do have a May Lime project coming up, Nathan, oh, yeah, so course. if this yes. is published Please before go for that. Um, yeah, it, you know, in May we have um, our May Lime annual awareness campaign and we, interestingly, and you know, fortuitously, um, the National Country Women's Association have come on board to support it. So, you know, and they're a large organization and they're, they want action for Lyme disease in Australia. So uh, we'll be partnering with them. And basically, it's going to be really simple for anyone to part participate. Just give $10 to the LDAA and take a bite in a Lyme and take a picker and share it all over Facebook and help us raise awareness of the need um, for so we'll have a website coming up, and if anybody wants to support that, that would be fantastic. Great. Great. Well, yeah, as I said, I'll hopefully um, maybe we can uh, reconvene in the future and um, give some positive updates on Lyme-like illness in Australia. That would be our pleasure. Great. Thank you.